The classic story always begins with once upon a time. Exploring the world for the greatest stories of all time. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Aaron O'Dowd Show. The Aaron O'Dowd Show. Our soul is the screen upon which we project our dreams. What's your story? Hello and welcome. On today's show, we have Leon Tully Ware. He is an amazing individual. He is an inspiration, works in business, energy, healing, etc. Hello, welcome to the show, Leon. How are you doing today? I'm very good, Aaron. How are you? Doing good. So you were born into the world and you spent the first eight years uh, discovering who you are and what you are. But give us a little background before you were figured out that you had dyslexia in some way. What was life like before that? If I look back before my dyslexia, I always found it quite challenging to assess the world. I always felt that um, I saw it differently. And as I got older, when I realized I had dyslexia, it became more apparent. So I thought there was something wrong with me rather than realizing that I just saw the world the way I saw the world. And there was nothing wrong with that. Um, So I would say I had a, a different perspective um, and I still I do my best to keep that perspective, even though I'm 54 now. I like the naiveness, the, the fr- freedom of a child spirit, really, where you're in experiencing the world and living the world in real time rather than on the calibration of expectation, whether that makes sense to you. It, it does indeed. So tell us about how you found out your dyslexia. Uh, well, I didn't find out, believe it or not, that I was dyslexic till I was about 16, 16 and a half. So I took myself out of school, and that might be a strange statement, I took myself out of school when I was eight and a half years old. And the reason I took myself out of school was um, not because of my dyslexia, is uh, I had an experience in the class one morning, my brother's partially sighted, and possibly, you know, that's it, and would, perceived the world differently. He had some challenges of his, self, of his own when he was growing up. And um, even though he's three years older than me, in many ways, I became the older brother because he couldn't see properly. So I would, uh, he has 5% sight in one eye, 10% in the other. And um, sometimes because of his disability, he would be, I suppose, what you would call bullied or picked on. Um, and some kids used to think it was funny to run past and push him or slap him and he wouldn't know who it was or they put him in goal and kick the ball at him rather than because he couldn't see the ball. Um, and he, uh, so many ways I felt that I had to, I didn't feel it, I suppose, it, I felt it was uh, my duty really to look out for him. And um, there was an experience I had in the class one day, the teacher left the class when she came back in and we were in the same class because we were in rural Ireland and the ages went from about about seven up to 14 and at 14 you move from that school to the brother's school and um, my teacher left the class when she came back somebody had spilt Fanta or orange on her books on the desk she asked who it was and uh, my name was put forward and I had left my chair and in them days they gave you the cane and it wasn't the first time I got the cane I got the cane a few times because I couldn't read properly and my teacher thought, I suppose because I looked like a normal, healthy um, individual, that she thought I was just taking the mickey because I was a bit of a, I suppose, mess. You would know I was in the room type of thing in a nice way, I thought, but um, I think she thought I was just taking the mickey. 
Anyway, uh, my name was put forward. I think it was Lee Miss, and I was sent up. Well, she called me up the front of the class, and she gave me the cane. And um, she, I got three on the hand. I still got a scar on my hand to this day because of it. She said, have you learnt your lesson now? And I said, do you want to give me one for luck? And she gave me one for luck, and I took the cane off her. And then I said to Bobby, we're leaving. Bobby's my brother. And he said, where are we going? I said, we're going home. And she, I got a few threats, as in to control me, as in if you don't sit down, if you don't do this, if you don't do that. And uh, I walked out of the class with my brother. We got, I don't even remember taking my satchel. When we left the school, which was about five to ten minutes walk from where we lived, the tide had come in and it flooded the road. And we had to walk through the tide up to our chest to get home. And we got home and I was a little bit in the now. And then I suppose you start to think of the consequences of your actions. Bear in mind, I was only about eight and a half. Bobby just followed me. And um, then I got, wait till your father gets home. So then I had to sit in, an, in apprehension for a few hours. And then my father came home and then I was told I was going back to school the next day. And I said I wasn't. And I was told I was. And I said I wasn't. And I was told I was. I said, as true as I draw breath, I will never step over the threshold of that into that classroom again, ever. And I never did. And uh, I was taught at home, and we had a private teacher for a while. And then when I, I still couldn't learn to spell or read properly, and then when I got to 16, it was, I decided to get like a teacher myself. And I used to go to the church in town, I think it was every Wednesday afternoon for about two hours for a lady to teach me. And she, after a few sessions, realized that I wasn't retaining or wasn't computing the information. So she sent me for an assessment, which I had to pay for myself. I think it was 120 punts in them days, which was in Galway. I had the assessment. She stopped the assessment and asked me, to, could I come back on another day? I thought it was just, I was stupid. And uh, my mum took me down and she said to my mum, well, I'd like to get somebody down from Dublin. And anyway, about a month later, I went back and uh, I was told I had an IQ of 176. I didn't know what an IQ was. My mother said, what does that mean? And I don't even know the chap's name. It said, well, Einstein has an IQ of 166. So he said his IQ's 10 points higher than Einstein. So when I normally tell a story, I say I walked in a dunce and walked out a genius because I was the little boy that had to stand in the corner of the class and wear a dunce's hat or was mocked because I couldn't spell. I still, I was in a meeting this morning. My day started this morning at 10 to 5. I was at a networking meeting. I'm the treasurer there. And I had to read out somebody's bio and I read the, the chap's bio out. His wife's name's Deirdre. And I read this wife's name is Deborah. And there was a few laughs in the room, which didn't bother me. And then uh, the president said, I don't think your wife would be happy about that. And then I realized I made a mistake because I don't read, I remember. Sometimes certain words look the same. So I still, at 54 years old, can't read very well. I, can, I do read. I read in my own style. And I think that has given me a different perspective on the world because when I read a book I don't always probably get the meaning of the book I put my own meaning to it a bit like I suppose if you read a novel and then watch the film the novel doesn't match the film and that's how I read a book I always found that because of my dyslexia and that looking back and obviously analysing and that that I have a very unique perspective on the world and uh, 
I think it's from a combination possibly of my interactions in life and with what some would call a disability that I would call my ability that for some reason my view of the world doesn't seem to match how everybody else thinks about themselves. And the reason for that, I think, is that I was the younger sibling but became the elder sibling, as in I became, so in many ways there was no pecking order for me. I never had to fit in in the class because I wasn't there long enough, so I never understood the pecking order. I never lo I lost value because I couldn't spell, and I suppose that was the only comparison I made of myself. Once I got past that and got to 16 or 18 and went out into the world as in discos and different things like that, I started to see that this pecking order existed, which I never subscribed to, even to this day. I don't understand how people can pigeonhole themselves and not say what they want to say or not be themselves because somebody they perceive to be more valuable, more capable is in the room. I don't know how people mould themselves based on other people's expectations, opinions or beliefs. So I've never subscribed to that. I never realised till I was probably later in life, 30, 40, because it caused a lot of problems for me, as in I felt I never fitted in. Or what I said sometimes would be positive and other people would hear it as a negative. Or if I asked a question for insight or understanding, they would hear it that I was questioning them and I never realised when somebody asks me a question, I don't take it personally. I assume they're looking for an answer, but I've noticed even up to recent times that I now frame it that I'm not questioning you. I'm asking for my own understanding. So I'm not asking to disrespect and I find that people ask questions and other people can take offence for it. So whether that answers your question, Aaron, I'm not sure. It does. And, and someone that wouldn't have a leading search or a, an education background, how did you educate yourself to get to where you were? In many ways, my father realised, obviously, and my mother, that I couldn't learn the conventional way. So I was taught more through, I suppose, what some would call now a VARC system, visual, auditory and kinesthetic. So I was taught through sensory learning, as in um, experienced learning. My dad, in many ways, or my mother, depending on who gave me the task, it was done in a way that I learned to think and assess and plan and articulate and wouldn't be told, yeah, I would be given the task, whether that be, um, for example, I remember being given the history book and said, read that, and you and Bobby work it out, incentivized with... Um, so, for instance, if you want to go to disco on a Friday night, then you're going to have 10 history questions out of that book at the end of the week. Whatever page we go to, if you answer the 10 questions, then you can go. And bear in mind, you couldn't read, but that wasn't an excuse, and it would be working out. You'd think, well, you're stuck. Right? How can you get this information out of this book into your head to a point that if a page is opened anywhere randomly, how do you answer the question on that page? A few times, same challenge was given to me probably 20 times, and every time I'd say I couldn't read, and Bobby couldn't read properly um, because he couldn't see, I would say, well, it's impossible. My father would say, well, that's fine. That's your decision. I said, well, it's not my decision. It's impossible. He said, well, that's your problem, not mine. Work it out. So you think it was impossible, so you give up, and then you'd be given the same task. So you want to go to the disco Friday? Yeah, well, work it out. 
And it sounds probably quite hard or quite, it could be perceived that way. It was quite challenging, but I wasn't given the answer, nor was Bobby. And my reasoning or my excuses did not justify that I could not get the information out of the book. That was my, my decision. And my father used to say, work it out. So then I worked it out. I asked my grandfather to read the book to me. And then I learned how to get information out of pages that I couldn't read into my head. So that's a strategy I kept for years. I even employed a chat once. I bought a dictaphone, I think, when I was about 17. And I used to get him to read books onto the dictaphone so I could listen to them back. And uh, so I suppose from that, the idea was that I learned uh, that problems always had a solution, however impossible they seemed or perceived, find the answer. So that would be part of my learning, then I'll be given tasks, as in whether it could be making something, building something. We had a farm, so my dad wouldn't tell us what to do. In a sense, he might tell us what jobs we had to do, but he wouldn't tell us how to do it. He would ask us, I suppose, what they call a coaching style now. That's what I need done. Need it done by this time. What do you think is the quickest way to do it and the best way? Bear in mind, we're not cutting corners. Best outcome possible. And so nowadays when I do personal development seminars or transform seminars, is whatever excuse or reason people come up with, default, I don't accept it. That's their perception of the world. That's the perception of reality. That's their decision-making. And sometimes, I suppose, you would call people out on themselves. If they're happy where they are, then that's fine. If they want to move from A to B in the shortest, quickest possible time, then you can go on a linear process, step by step by step by step, which is, in my mind, is a calibration process. If it's seven steps, how much time is between each step? And that's many ways how, in my mind, in the school system we learn or taught is that it takes four years to do this or it takes three years to do this. And it's not the subject they're learning, that's one thing, but it's also the calibration of that learning and that calibration style of learning is not congruent with the time it takes to learn. It's congruent with when they want that person in the marketplace for a job, in my opinion. So years ago, you could leave school at 14, you could leave school at 16. Nowadays, you leave school at 18, they want to keep you in school as long as possible, and then you go to college or uni. And the learning process now, if you're a doctor or a surgeon or solicitor, let's say that's true. In many ways, I think my opinion would be that the learning styles they have in schools today cap the learning ability of people. And I think it also sets the parameter with the pecking order where they find their place within the class, within the school, within society. That also caps their ability to articulate, comprehend, because their self-value governs their outcome and their ability. And it's very interesting that as I work with people over time, I can ask them their score on the leaving cert, and most times with accuracy, tell them where they sat in their class. The child that sits at the back of the class, their marks will be below average. The child that sits in the middle of the class or in that region, their scores will be average. The child that sits at the front of the class, not unless they're put there for disciplinary reasons, will be above average, will have the higher marks. If they're on the left or the right of the class, that can also have some impact. So if you go to the cinema and see how people sit, 
Why did they sit there? There's a reason for it. Normally the reason is where their place is within society. So the car you drive, the clothes you wear, the food you eat, the holidays you take, your goals in life are all congruent, in my opinion, with where you perceive or believe you fit in society. And the obstacles that we experience inside, the feelings of stuck or where you're just exhausted with life, in my mind are a consequence of the linear learning system because in many ways our freedom, our internal freedom, not external freedom, our internal freedom is governed and we overlay this linear process onto our biology, onto our spirit, onto our mind, into our heart and we mould ourselves to fit with this calibration and then we experience the rest of our life through it and in many ways the sense of freedom that child that's in us, that spirit that's in us is governed, moulded. It's not real, it's just that's what we've learned to do. We've learned to show up in many ways, how people expect us to show up. We value ourselves for a score on a piece of paper. We give up our authority sometimes, even for our biology, that we must ask to go to the toilet. And if we don't ask, it's considered as disrespect. That's what I mean about my view of the world. Some might say it's an anarchist view or a negative view or a disruptive view, to me it's the truth. It's not a negative or a positive, it just is. Um, a child in my mind or any individual, any human, is totally unique. But we all learn the same things and in many ways we assess ourselves through our learning and our evaluation in the real world and we take that inside and we overlay an external process and system to create synergy within society and we mold it back into ourselves and we perceive, believe, expect and understand that this is how we control ourselves. And we take a linear process, external process inside ourselves and that can affect our spirit, our mind, our state of mind, our emotions and our biology. I get the feeling that you can tell by a person the way they sit in the classroom, cinema, etc. Was that you learning that or is that just something you could see over a period of time? Um, well, sometimes you can think it's an observation as in my perception. And bear in mind just to clarify because it could be heard through that I have a problem with learning. I learn every day, every day. I think information and the ability to gather as much data or wisdom as possible, I would be, I mean, if you saw my phone, I'm listening to audio books all the time, I'm watching videos all the time. Any moment I've got, I will learn. I've always been that way. I love learning. So I have no problem with learning. I have no problem with moving forward, what some would call it. But freedom, that individuality, that sense of self should not be lost within the data we learn. The person that learns should learn congruent with who they are from their place of self, from their place of freedom. In the early stages, when we learn numbers or the alphabet, then there's a process and procedure. We need to learn that to, for calibration. But to take away the sense of um, that freedom, the way we're marked, I say it like this if I do speeches, that I stood up in a speech once with a suit and I had a chalk and I said, do you like my suit? And they said, yes. And then I got a member of the audience out 
and I got them to write a hundred percent, like one zero zero and the percent mark on the front of my suit in white chalk. I said, has that added value to my suit? And people looked at me a bit strangely, and I said, honestly, has it? If you agree it's added value, put your hand up, and nobody put the hand up. So I said, is it taken value away? The majority of people put the hand up. I said, all right, what about if I write it on my waistcoat? And I opened the jacket up and got the person to write on my waistcoat, 100%. Has that added value to my suit now? And everybody sort of put, nobody put their hand up. And so I said, so do you think it's taken anything from my suit? As in, it's lowered the value of the suit and people put their hand up. I said, all right. I said, now I'm a little bit confused. I said, this is my external suit. What about all the marks that have been written on my birthday suit? What about all the marks that have been written on the inside of me where I valued myself by the mark I didn't get or by the mark I did get? Some people value themselves by the mark they got on their leaving cert and perceive that they're more valuable than the person who got a low mark. Even their own friends and family gauge their child or sibling or based on this mark. I think it's a very archaic way of valuing a human being. It's only, some might say, possibly my opinion. But I think if we have honor, integrity, sincerity, and we look at it with like true, a true sense of spirit, what it is to be a human being. In my mind, and bear in mind it's only in my mind, every human being has the same value, and that's priceless. You can't replicate them, you can't make them, you can't buy them. If it was an artifact, it would be priceless if it was unique. Just because there's loads of us, we all show up differently if we're allowed to. But I think in many ways, the way we value ourselves because of learning, not because we learn, but the way we value learning and the way it becomes a passport through life to the job, the car, the suit, the holiday, the food, the house, the home. That value determines most people's outcome. And then they choose their goals, failing to realize in many ways that they've had an ingrained system processed on the inside. And they want to push against this system, that fight inside, that desire, that determination, that drive to overcome something that's been taught to them. And that's the challenge I have with the linear style of learning. I think, I know it can be overridden very quickly. However, people will debate and argue the point. But in my mind, nothing good will ever come from anything bad. I'll translate that, nothing good will ever come from anything that takes somebody's value away. Recognition, positivity, respect, integrity, honesty, in my mind is many of the core values that we should have as society's default. And if we spoke from a true human perspective, a true value of life, a true value of that individual person, the world will be a much better place. So I may have gone off into left field, but that, that would be my perspective of it, my understanding of it. And what was it like growing through each decade being unique in your own way? Well, I think we're all unique. My challenge was I couldn't understand that I kept having similar conversations with unique individual people. They always seemed to show up very similar. They all seemed to have the same answers to the same question. But you think if they're unique and they're free thinking, then logically there's no way that a hundred people in a room should think the same way. 
and should come up with the same answer. It's not math, it's not two plus two is four. Everybody will come up with four. But on their own experience of life, when they say, well, I'm stuck. Why are you stuck? Well, it's because um, of this, okay? And what are you going to do about it? Well, I've got to learn to do this. And But the, you're stuck inside. How do you learn something about you on the outside? And they go, how do you mean? I say, well, you're, you're stuck. If you were stuck in a field in mud, in the real world, then I can understand you being stuck. When you tell me you're stuck inside, that's not the real world. That's your world. You're the god of your world. You're in control inside if you process from freedom. Accepting that the external world and the rules and regulations that's there, they're there to serve humanity, to create uh, collaboration, to create safety, as in the laws and regulations that's there, are to ensure our safety. But when you take them inside and make them your internal rules, the governing factors that govern every breath and every heartbeat, every thought and every emotion, then the sense of freedom and purpose, in my mind, is tarnished. So my unique perspective of the world, possibly for years, is how to make sense of it, to the point that I took myself out of it for about seven years. Apart from going and getting my hair cut and going to the dentist, I never didn't want, I won't say didn't want to, I became more of a hermit because I could not have the same conversations over and over again. Listen to the news and it'd be the same outcome. I don't read the papers, don't watch the news. If the news was unbiased and left you make your own mind up based on the information, then yes, I could see the sense in it. But to allow external information to go in and govern me, and that, that like I say, could be my perspective. It could be that some may perceive I have a challenge of authority. I, rec I respect authority. I respect order, I respect safety. I just don't respect devaluation of something you can't put a price on. So my unique perspective of the world would be, how do you remove, in many ways, the junk or the devaluation, the rubbish in life that's inside many of us to a point that the human being, the soul, the spirit of that person can show up as their true self and still have that linear learning, but understand that they are not their learning. They are not their experiences. They are not their emotions. They are not their beliefs or opinions. They are this unique spiritual being that experiences their experiences. They're the ones that feel the breeze on their face. The breeze on the face is not them. They experience the breeze. We take information in and we sort of calibrate it and say, I'm this because I failed at that. I'm this because I've got a low value at that. That I found very confusing. Nowadays, I've made sense of it and I've developed in many ways process and a procedure, a formula um, to neutralize it and to create that sense of freedom for others. And that's been most of my learning journey is how even down to illnesses like the expectations people have, the fear they have. And in many ways, the way I would communicate it, not the way I understand it, the way I understand it and then to find the message where an external being hears what I'm saying, is that we have four operating systems. The default in society is we have this head-top computer and everything is below, uh, the head-top computer is 10%. And that's the peak of the iceberg. 90% of the icebergs below the surface and they call that subconscious. And that's just a model and a theory that 
they've used as a governing factor to define us and then we communicate or we can't communicate to this 90% iceberg below the surface we can only communicate to the 10% above the surface and to me that's the linear mind what we call consciousness is anything we have a knowing for we have an understanding for inside and we have an agreement with somebody else's inside that the word dog means dog what type of dog this dog a great dane or a yorkshire terrier we all know and we know what that means so we've had to create an external language to communicate to each other the language we use today isn't the language we've always used the language has developed over time and somebody obviously decided what a was and b was and c was somebody decided what these words mean and through time we now call these words that are an external language thoughts and thoughts are not the words we utilize that are in the dictionary that are in the external world are not thoughts they're a communication a process for myself or another individual to speak to another individual there are agreements made to allow a form of communication from one mind one spirit one heart one body to another for some reason we've overlaid it back into our heads and we perceive that what we think is who we are even to the point that we justify positive and negative thinking. That if you think this and it's negative, it could harm you or somebody else. If you think this and it's positive, then you're going to have a better life to the point that we utilize language like affirmations to deliver a message to ourselves. If I say X to myself on a regular occurrence, then I will hear myself and I will follow that instruction. So I cannot communicate to myself. I'm a single entity. I can communicate to you. I cannot love myself. I can love another person. I cannot trust myself. I can trust another person. I cannot believe in myself. I can believe in another person. If I have the need or the desire to believe in myself, then I'm not my true self. And if I live my life on belief, then I also live my life on doubt. Because for a belief to exist, a doubt must exist. The truth, as true as I breathe, as true as my heart pumps, as true as I speak to you. The truth is the truth. If the beliefs were truths, they would be called truths. For a belief to exist, the doubt must exist. And in my opinion, the internal chatter we have in our mind is corrupt data, data that is belief, and a doubt that is the opposite to it. So a belief can be, say, nine parts. A truth is ten parts. A belief consists of ten parts, but it consists of nine parts belief, one part doubt. If it's a hope, as in you have an opinion or a belief that X will happen and you don't like it, and you hope that something different will happen, then you have nine-tenths that says the negative will happen, and you have one-tenth, one part of it that's a hope that will questions the overall belief. Faith is similar. When you have truth, faith does not exist. When you have truth, belief does not exist. And in my opinion, even in the personal development industry, in all the teachings in life, in all the teachings of the great masters, everybody preaches belief. Belief is an external language. I can believe in you. I cannot believe in me. I'm a single entity. I can talk to you. I cannot talk to me. If I speak to myself, what part of me is listening and what part of me is speaking? I already know what I'm going to say. Why do I need to say it back to myself so I hear it? And the reason, in my opinion, is that we are running an internal, an external program internally. And it's a program, and we perceive that program to be us. 
our intellectual self is our knowledge, our library. They're the books, the, the experiences, are the pages in the books. A book is not me. That would be my representation of the world. And like I say, it's a very different perspective and very different understanding. And some would probably find it very controversial, extreme, and maybe madness. But to me, it's the absolute truth. As true as the sun will come up tomorrow, there's one person that thinks for you. One person that breathes for you. One person that your heart pumps for. And in my opinion, if you or any other individual is not bringing their true self to this world, then we are living a program. And there's no authenticity in just showing up to please somebody else. But there's no authenticity in showing up to displease somebody else. But you should have the freedom to express who you are in a positive, respectful, authentic manner. And if the other person disagrees with you, that's their entitlement. If all humans thought alike, then we would only need one human. The point of that being, if I'm in a room with 10 people and nine of all think alike, I find that very uneasy. If I'm in the room with 10 people and they all have a different opinion, agree on some points, not on others, I find that to me would be normal. My experience is that if you've got 10 people in the room, the majority always seem to have the same, what some would call a mindset. And some people see the mindset to be positive. If you compare a growth mindset to a fixed mindset, then yes, a growth mindset is positive. But anything your mindset in, in my mind, is negative. I prefer to set my mind rather than have my mind set. So my perspective of the world is very unique. So it should be. That doesn't make me different or worth any more than anybody else. It's just my perspective of the world. I'm happy to be wrong. I'm not married to my opinion. I'm not here to prove myself. I'm not here to debate. I'm here to collaborate and communicate and to serve. If my words are heard in the negative, I can assure you they're meant with the greatest sincerity and to serve everybody that hears them to the highest standard. Anybody that receives them in the negative, I would say that that is their BS, their belief systems. Does that answer the question, Aaron? It does. And over those seven years when you kind of went inwards, tell us about how you kind of got out of that funk and back into being your, your true self. Good question. The easiest way, so I can tell you, like a long journey, if I'm honest, long struggles of am I mad? Why am I different to everybody else? And questioning myself, how do you question yourself when you're one entity? And the light bulb moment, I suppose, the aha moment, that what I call alignment, because truth to me externally is a word. It's a word we've agreed on that means it's 100%. It's nothing other than the truth. The truth to me is something that you would say and would always remain the same from this moment to the end of the universe. That's the truth to me. And there's two types of truths. There's our truth and there's the truth, universal truth. Universal truth is you breathe for you, I breathe for me, the sun will come up tomorrow. And there are things that will remain the same all the time, like your life or your existence is here. Beliefs are not truths. How did I get that light bulb moment? Is when I stopped comparing myself to somebody else. When I stopped judging other people and stopped judging myself. When I realized that I cannot question myself. I am one entity. I can question the data that's in my mind. 
I can articulate the data, I can reason the data. A thought is like a snowflake, you have thousands, millions of them. Thought means nothing. The reasoning behind your thinking, the articulation of your thinking, that substance of thought inside, where you articulate it, where it has a structure in your mind, where it has a process, and you know with all certainty that you have thought it through, and no human being, no God, can ever change what you thought. Now that's in mind, in spirit, or heart, or body, as in gut, because normally we feel it in our guts. We might feel stress in our body, but normally the gut is where we write the information to the biological hard drive. The heart is where we write the information to the emotional hard drive. Normally around the solar plexus like, is where we put our spirit energy. So the spirit has a hard drive, the gut has a hard drive, the heart has a hard drive, and the mind. Now bear in mind, they're just external languages. I don't really truthfully believe I have a hard drive inside me. I'm just utilizing things that people would understand. Each drive processes differently. So for example, a smartphone is not compatible with an iPhone. And an Apple tablet will run different apps to, a, say, a Microsoft tablet. So if you looked at it like that, that in a sense, the emotional hard drive is, say, an iPhone and uh, an old Nokia phone, let's say, is the biology, or the, the mind might be, depending on how up-to-date your mind is, if you're a free thinker, your mind might be running Windows 10, and then your gut, your gut is obviously the Nokia, and your spirit is, let's say, the phone charger. It's the charger that gives energy to all of it, but it processes it, that, that energy that the charger produces can have a dimmer switch on it that turns the, the flow of energy down or increases it to fully full charge, fast charge. So wherever we're writing our information to, sometimes we feel it in our gut. That's where we feel it. But what sent the information to our gut? Was it our mind? Was it the way the information was delivered? So many perceive that the words I speak are my message. The words, in my opinion, are only the vessel that carries the message. They're the envelope that delivers the energy, the essence, the intention. That's why you can say one thing and they can interpret it a different way. And you upset somebody and you say, well, I didn't mean to upset you. I know what you meant. Well, I didn't mean that. Yes, you did. I know what you meant. I know what you think of me. No, you don't know what I think of you. Yes, I do. No, you don't. I'm thinking of a number between one and ten. What is it? And they can never tell you accurately, they guessed. So obviously another person does not know what I think and I do not know what another person thinks. I can utilize empathy and I can utilize my skills of non-verbal, whether they squint an eye or hold their breath or touch or whatever. I can utilize all that information to assess what I think somebody is thinking. My accuracy, I don't know. So how do you get from what some might say, dark to light, stuck to unstuck, how do you get that sense of free breath? How do you get your chin up off the floor? How do you move yourself? Bear in mind, move is biological, not spiritual. How do you move yourself? How do you make sense of life? Make sense of life is mind. How do you have that joy in life? That's emotion. How do you have that passion, spirit in life? In my opinion, there's one thing that brings all that together, and that's the truth. The truth is not a word, it's externally it's a word, internally 
It's pure alignment. No part of your existence since the dawn of your creation will disagree with you. Every hard drive is running on 100% data to align. And when it aligns, your spirit, your biology, your heart, your mind is in complete alignment. Now, if you use a lie in the next breath, then it will go out of alignment. So if you say to somebody, I really enjoyed that, then what you're actually saying is my heart felt that. I liked it. Like is like emotion. And if that's a lie, if another part of you, you might have enjoyed it in your heart, but your mind may have thought they could have done it better. That's judgment. And when you express it, you express it with not pure honesty. And the other person's biology, spirit, emotions and mind takes on the data. And they take it on what some would call subconsciously. It's only because we haven't got a language for the heart, for the biology, and for the spirit. We utilize thought, words, external words as a language to think with. Even the 90% below the surface, and even though they say it's below the surface, that's what we're using every day. When we drive the car, we might know the navigation system, the mind's thinking, but the hands and the feet do everything you want. Break instantaneously without thought if something jumps out in front of you. The subconscious is fully aware. It just does not understand or compute a logical, linear language. You can communicate to your subconscious and you're doing it every second, every time you breathe. You can hold your breath, even though it's a biological program. You can hold your breath. That means you can communicate to your subconscious. How do you get alignment? You just decide with every part of your existence since the dawn of creation. One, that I accept myself, as in whatever's gone before is not me. My experiences are things I've experienced. They are not myself. They are not I. They are what I has experienced. The breath I believe is here to serve me and others, not to attack me. The universe isn't out to get me. Life isn't hard. It's only as hard or as easy as I accept it or believe it to be. People aren't bad, they're good. In my mind, if you can see the best in people, everybody shows up in a bad way sometimes, I have myself. That isn't who they are. That's how they've shown up in that moment, in that moment of time. And some people have only spent a very small amount of time with people. Well, even if they work with that person every day, they're working beside each other, they might only communicate for 20 minutes, half an hour. And they may have every day, five days a week, half an hour. They may have only spoken over lunch or a coffee break for five minutes. But because they've worked with them for 10 years, they perceive, they believe that they know this person. No, they know the exterior actions of that person. They know their capability based on their assessment in their environment. That isn't who the person is. Every person you will ever meet is not their leaving sir. You don't need the certification to breathe and for your heart to pump and for you to have an existence in this world. And when I say an existence, I don't mean to just live a survival mindset, keep the cave warm, keep the electric on. To me, that's just existence. We're just a modern caveman or woman. To have a life is to have a purpose, to have a reason to breathe. So Simon Sennett said about your passion, find your why. That's the word. I think Simon Sennett, his book's very good, but I think he knows a little bit more 
then he's communicating in the book. I don't think he's left anything out. I think it's just the messaging. It's far deeper than the why. That's the message to communicate. To align is to find that very part of you that wants not to succeed, that wants that integrity inside. But to get that integrity in many ways must decide on the purpose and reason for having it. Many people want to be enlightened. For what purpose? For what reason? Well, I want to be enlightened. Yeah, well, what are you going to do once you're enlightened? Well, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. So then there's no purpose for enlightenment. What change? What shift? What difference? How are you going to improve humanity? How are you going to improve the quality of life? How are you going to help feed the children that can't be fed? Bed the people that have no beds? How are you going to increase life expectancy? How are you going to change the world for a, a better place? Even if it's just your world, your community. We are a single entity, as in we are totally independent. Well, I can prove that to you. Next time you look in the mirror of your shirt off, look at your belly button. That's your place of independence. When your cord was cut, you were separated from another individual. That was the first time your breath breathed, your heart pumped for you. And most people, if you ask them, and I have asked them, on a scale of 0 to 10, how's that working out for you? I've never found somebody that scores it in a 10. It's normally in like the low fives, maybe a 6. And if you push with integrity and honesty and really make them decide and not answer the way they think I want them to expect, like how they think they I expect them to answer, if they answer with true honesty they might see the program for a minute the self-domestication or the external domestication so breathe the breath put your hand on your heart become conscious of it and the recognition that this is my breath my heart that nobody else will ever think for me nobody else will ever breathe for me nobody else will utilize my heartbeat unless i'm no longer here because I'm not my heart, I'm not my mind, I'm not my spirit. They're just the things that flow through me. And when you in many ways accept yourself, not your information, when you accept yourself that you are separate from everything you will ever feel, separate from everything you will ever know, separate from everything you will understand, separate from everything you will ever believe, or separate from everything you will ever comprehend, when that separation of data happens and in my opinion it's very easy you just have the realization that my experiences are things i experienced i experienced they're not me things i think they're the things i think my thoughts are not me nor are they in control of me the evaluation others have put on me are nothing they're their thoughts and opinions. They have no value on me. I'm a free-thinking individual. They can think that way. They're free to think any way they want. I just don't have to take their data and write it on my hard drive. Anyone. Long answers, I know, but my intention is to speak to the part of every person that will ever hear this, that very part that is them, not to the facade, not to the mask, not to the expectations of others. I would like to speak to the very essence that is the human that listens to this. And for them to truly hear with every part of their existence since the dawn of their creation. And for them to know with every breath 
every molecule, every fiber, every atom, that they are absolutely perfect in every way imaginable. And to accept that is the absolute truth. And to let the facade, the dust, the grime, the sheen or the tarnish that's on them throughout their life, let that go and just be themselves and not show up to please anybody else or fulfill anybody else's expectations. Show up as their true self. If they want to say something, frame it in the positive. If the other person doesn't like it, that's their prerogative. But just be honest. So to me, it's that simple. Leon, if you could look back at yourself and give advice to your younger self, what would it be? Do exactly what I've done. Okay. Put me on a steep learning curve, but I have no regrets. Where I've been is where I've been. The only time machine I have is inside me. If I look back on my life, I wouldn't change a single thing. Do people come in and ask for your advice, or how do you get them to the stage of where they realize their true self? That's a good question. I found that one-to-one, that's quite easy. In a room full of people, 40, 50, 60 people, maybe 100 people, that the number isn't the problem is that sometimes when you're working one-on-one in front of a group if something comes up and you're doing stuff in real time if you hear something in somebody that's restricting them or holding them back the person you speak to hears you because your words are meant for them the ones that listen in the fly on the wall the eavesdroppers judge the communication not the outcome they judge the communication so sometimes you have to ask people very honest questions You're not interested in the answer. I'm not a gossip. The question I design or speak to the person in front of me is not, I'm not interested in the answer. I'm not doing a catalogue of their life. I ask them a question for them to get insight, for them to move, for them to shift. If they answer externally, that might give me a little bit more data. Really all I'm doing is removing the Trojan horse on the hard drive. I'm not interested in the Trojan horse. I'm not interested in their perception of the Trojan horse. It's irrelevant. All the time they communicate from the Trojan horse, that won't help them. I think this, and then they give you a reason. I think this because, that's fine. Are you happy with that? Well, no. So fair enough. So what you think is not serving you. Can we agree on that? Yes. So would you like to let go of the thing that's not serving you, whether that be mental, physical, emotional, or spiritual? Yes. Fair enough. Let's focus there. But I'm not sure. I didn't ask for your assessment of self. That's your judgment of yourself in this moment. In the transition process, just focus on the outcome. Don't judge yourself in transition. I wouldn't imagine a rose from a bud to a fully bloomed flower judges how quick it opens or how many petals it has. It just opens. So to watch people sort of bloom and not because of my consequence. I'm the facilitator. It's because of them. And it's so refreshing to see how quick people bloom when they're given permission to. Because of that linear process, rather than trying to change that pattern of behavior that everybody keeps trying to fight against, and they say it's ingrained in you. If it's ingrained, and that's the way it's expressed, and that's the way it's believed, and that's the way it's accepted, it's ingrained. How do you get something that is ingrained out? And that's the mindset, see, everyone wants to get, break this pattern, get this grain out. Once it's recorded in the record, can you re-record on the record? And if people are looking to shred beliefs, looking to change the modalities, looking to visualize it in a certain way, looking to communicate to self. 
whether you visualize it, whether you use um, affirmations. And bear in mind, I'm not disrespecting the tool. They are a tool. But depending on where you are and where you want to go, if you want to paint a fence, you use a paintbrush, you don't use a hammer. And in many ways, in my opinion, people are utilizing the wrong tool for the job. If they want to move from A to B, then in many ways they assess first. And the change is inside. Don't look for it to show up on the outside. Don't look for the new car, the new house, the new clothes. Don't look for the recognition and the positivity from other people. You align inside. Everything you do will come from you. Success is an inside-out process. How you, in, or how I would help people is I wouldn't get in their way. But if I do my job right, at the moment, like I said, it's been a challenge to work with groups. So I've got it sussed. And like, sussed means I'm I'm at that sweet spot now where one-on-one's easy for me. 50, 60 people, and you've got overall message that's being interpreted in probably, hopefully, 50 or 60 different ways. It's the finite calibration that suits them all. What I've worked out is how to utilize the natural linear process against itself so we're not looking to change the grain we're going to utilize the grain not against itself but really that's the language you're going to utilize what they know what they already understand you're not going to teach them anything you're just going to use what they already know utilize it to the highest standard to serve them if their calibration is it's going to take them two years to transform who's the boss of them they are if people perceive the seven steps, then there's seven steps. Well, I have to go to step five before I can go to step six. That's fine. That's how you decide. But internal change, internal transformation happens in a heartbeat, in a breath. It doesn't need seven steps, in my opinion. So the art is to move people in a linear mind. They might believe or accept or comprehend. And people will side with them and say, well, it is seven steps. You can't just do it in a breath or a heartbeat. But that's fine. That's your belief. And according to your beliefs, that will be done unto you. Imagine if you had a different one. Imagine you could do it in a heartbeat. Now you're imagining it. What would you have to think? What would you have to feel to allow that your freedom that you came into this world with, your universal energy, what would you have to feel, think and do? to enable the very part of you to be the very part of you. So it's language like who breathes for you, who thinks for you, who decides for you. Because there's only one person that does, and that's you. And whoever hears this, whoever breathes, like, who breathes for you, the answer has to be you. Who thinks for you, the answer has to be you. Whose heart beats for you, the answer has to be mine. Whose life are you living, mine. You want to truthfully, with every part of your existence, as true as you draw breath, as true as your name is, do you want to be have the freedom and to live your life to the highest standard from this moment to the end of your existence, not the end of your life? And everybody answers yes. Is that the truth? Yes. The truth will set you free, as so long as you know the difference between a truth, a belief, and a thought. So there's... That hopefully, if I've translated it correctly, a lot to take in possibly, that might sound like arrogance, but that's where I am. What you hear from my paramount is not what I say, it's what you hear. Neon, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with you, Sherman. It's been a blast and a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you for listening to The Aaron O'Dowd Show. where the world's best stories are told.
If you like, please post a review or subscribe to the show. To find out more, contact us at aaronodowd.com. That's A-R-O-N-O-D-O-W-D.com. We're always ready to share another magnificent tale from the world's best storytellers. You. So stay tuned and rock on.